Then if the temperature had dropped enough, the stays were loosened and the house undressed for night. Even the front door wide now for the slightest breeze, a welcoming of all the seasoned scents, the jasmine, someone else's supper, and a neighbor's voice out walking Labradors, the only time of day for it this time of year. listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Hello, my name is Jennifer Williams, Program Manager at the Scottish Poetry Library. It is uh, festival time here in Edinburgh, so for this podcast, I'm not in our usual podcast room. We are actually down in the, I want to say the belly of the Scottish Poetry Library, the underbelly of the Scottish Poetry Library, where the Edward Morgan Archive resides. And I'm sitting here in the wonderful presence of the poet Isabel Dixon. I'm very excited that she's able to give us some time for this podcast during this crazy festival time because Isabel lives down in London, is that right? Work in London. Oh, work in London. Live in Cambridge. Live in Cambridge. So um, I feel like we get we get you up here every year during the festival for a short period of time. So. Um, it's it's fantastic that we can fit this in, especially on this auspicious time when you have not one but two new collections just coming out. So we're going to get to hear from both of those. Just very briefly, uh, I'll mention that Isabel's originally from South Africa and uh, had published some work there and then came along to the UK. What year was it? I came actually straight to Edinburgh. In 1993, ah. September 93, because I did my postgrad study here at Edinburgh University, following in my father and grandparents' footsteps, because they were Scottish. Very nice. Your dad was Scottish. My dad was Scottish. He was born in Beath and grew up in Creef, mm-hmm. and then studied at St Andrews, and also did his teaching diploma for his year training at Murray House here in Edinburgh. And your mum was from My South mother was South African, and met him in the boarding house that they were both staying in when my father first arrived to be a curate at the cathedral in Umtata where I was born and um, someone in the church one of the congregation members said well my niece is coming to um, niece or cousin I'm not sure but a relative of my mother's she's going to come to work in the bank please keep an eye on her so my father did (laughs) for the rest of his life (laughs) And, and it, you moved from the coast kind of inland? Yes, right? uh, born in Antarctica, which is on the wild coast, mm. and in a region called the Transkei, the Eastern Cape region. But my father had very bad asthma, and that's actually one of the reasons why he wanted to come to Africa. He wanted to get away from Dundee, where he was at the cathedral in Dundee. And, of course, all the places, all the cities, Edinburgh, Dundee, London, were very, very smoky, very bad for anyone with a lung condition but actually mainly he wanted adventure and travel (laughs) and to do the work the work of the Lord Mm -hmm. and he felt that he should uh, go to Africa and then landed up in in, um, the Transkei in Antarctica where it wasn't exactly the best climate for him either because it was subtropical very humid hot and humid Mm -hmm. so eventually the doctor said he should go somewhere drier and 
the Karoo where I grew up is probably one of the driest places in South Africa. It's semi-desert, wow. um, sometimes long periods of drought, um, very, very hot summers and cold winters too. It's not quite as cold as Scotland. And so moved to a town called Grafrenet, which is pretty much in the centre of the country. A very, very beautiful town. Mm. And that's where my youngest sister, the fifth daughter in the family, was born and where we grew up. And it's where we still have the house, um, which looms quite large in my poetry. There's a poem called 42 Somerset Street in my first collection, Weather Eye, which is our address, which is still the house that we, we live in. It belongs to five, oh, five sisters now, because both my parents wow. have died. Both my parents actually died in that house, wow. in the bed in which we were probably all conceived. Wow. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I feel like that beautiful sort of circularity doesn't always happen to no, people. No, I feel very fortunate. And although I live quite a travelling life and came to study in Scotland and then thought I'd go back after two years, circumstances, you know, roll, <laughs> roll on as they do. I think you understand that yeah. too. And my then-boyfriend, who's now my husband, wanted to study in London, so we moved to London after my degrees were over and... He did a master's in London and then a PhD in Cambridge and by then I was already quite deep into the fascinating job which I still do as a literary agent so I started to build my list and mm. wasn't ready to drop everything and go back and we were always saying just a couple more years just a couple more years and that's now rather two decades and a bit later we're still in the UK but go back all the time. Is he South African? He's South African oh, as well so his okay. parents were in Cape Town my family are mostly in the Karoo still, and when my, I've gone back at least once a year, mostly twice a year, and when my parents were each very ill in their last years, I was going back three to four times a year, four times a year for the last few years, and uh, so I'll probably settle back into two or three times a year now. Aww. And in the time since you've come here, you've just, um, Isabella has brought along her book collection of poetry here, and there are a number of different books, which we won't get to read from all of them, but I'll, I'll, I'm waving them in front of the audio recorder, which Should is I very helpful. Should I sense them, the vibration <laughs> yeah. of the poetry? But, um, I really recommend you have, have a look if you can... Um, Come along here. We have some of them in the poetry library. The poetry I'll library in London. I leave. I leave oh, copies of the ones you don't have. Amazing, That's amazing. Nice. But there are um, wonderful collections, including the Tempest Prognosticator. A good titles as mm. well. A fold in a map, which we'll get to hear from the debris field, uh, which is part of a project with Simon Bearclaw and Chris McKay, yes. which it uh, sounds like we might be hearing more from that soon. We'll we'll talk about that later. Um, another wonderful project um, about the film Psycho called Psychopoetica. Without further ado, what I would love to do actually is hear you read poems. So we get some of your poetry right into the mix and then we'll talk a bit more. So I'm going to read from a poem called The Leonids, which is from the Mariscat pamphlet The Leonids, which was launched on Friday, just, just at, on the cusp of the book festival as well. And without us realising it, when Hamish White, publisher of Mariscat, said, how would you feel about launching on Friday the 12th of August, which is just before the festival starts, I was like, yay, very, very happy, brilliant. Um, neither of us realised until this week that 
Friday the 12th of August was the peak viewing night for the Perseid meteor showers. And the Leonids is called the Leonids because it's about my father taking me to see the Leonid meteor showers when I was a little girl. So it was one of those lovely Wonderful fortuitous coincidences. Yeah, and I felt very, very auspicious. I kinda, just kind of chill. Oh. And my father was a very keen amateur astronomer. Had a lovely big telescope, which I remember him buying in London. And um, my mother was troubled with depression for many years. She had postnatal depression after I was born. So some of the poems in the Leonids refer to this. And this poem is set during a time when she was away in hospital. The Leonids. Another drought and my mother gone away to where they could take better care of her, though it seemed to me she'd fled her horde of daughters and the rage we bred in her. The thrill of leaving the house so late. Warm night, a dark glass stoppered jar, its glittering suspension stippled in the sky's liquidity. Daddy starting up the car in the silent street, gliding like a boat through the tree-lined channels broad enough to turn an ox cart in, to the limits of the town, the hill beyond the lamp's familiar light. Ever vigilant against the risk of chill, he had donned, he'd like the word, his opera cloak with its silvered clasp, a swirl of pitch black wool, transforming him to impresario of the wide Karoo, of the dam wall shored against its field of creviced mud. The old cliché, though he didn't say it, whispers in my ears. Daughter, look, all of this is yours. But his focus then wasn't terrestrial. His sweeping gesture gave a swathe of sky, an overture of pizzicato stars, and a slant above the glorious rippling fall of meteors. No doubt his explanation passed me by. So much I never really learned. But the yearly showers remain, sure precipitations heralded in my memory by a wave of Handel's violins. Mostly, I miss the sightings, but still sieve through this inheritance, my mother's lonely tinctured night, my father's bright cascade of dust. Beautiful, glowy, magical mm. pictures painted. The sky there. in the Karoo is very, very clear, mm. and of course, it's far from a big city, so you only have to go a little way outside town to get proper velvet black sky and, and beautiful stars. You know. Golly, yeah. and that speaks so much. I mean, it sounds like there was quite a, uh, a and also because as you mentioned there's there's another collection which has many poems about your father mm. uh, right um this really interesting complex relationships with the parents mm. how has that been exploring that in poems well i mean my father was one of these people who he had this big white beard an incredibly cheerful face and demeanor he was a very clever man he was a wise man he was very kind um, so he, he's, he's, he's quite a legend in the school where he taught he was both a science teacher and a man of the cloth and always wanted to do both. He didn't want to just be a full-time preacher. He felt that he had something to give in the teaching of science as well and saw no distinction between those, those two belief systems or you know, those two areas of knowledge. And um, 
so he was uh, he was much loved and and I as the fourth daughter I somehow I, we had a very very strong connection and uh, I always knew you know when he was when he was starting to be ill I didn't know that I would publish the poems but I had to write as a way of dealing with what was happening a way of perhaps controlling what was happening and working through it so mm -hmm. and it was only about five years after my father had died and along the way I'd shared the poems with my sisters and my mother and they were saying when are you going to publish them and I thought well now I have permission and actually maybe maybe it is the right thing and my father quite enjoyed being known about so I think he would have quite enjoyed oh. knowing that there was a book about <laughs> him in the end so yeah so it did he he was he was already passed before the collection came out yes yeah. yes oh. yeah he, he oh. died about um 14 years ago oh. but yeah so the, the collection came later but he didn't know that I was writing he he was alive when Weather Eye was published the mm -hmm. very first one published by Carapace in South Africa Already he was quite frail, and um, but I remember when the book, the box of books arrived in Craft Renate, him sitting in his big green armchair looking at the book, which is something I'm very proud of. That sort of moment that he saw that, and then when he went through a spell after a big operation in '99 when he was very ill, and we thought he might die. He came very close to death, but pulled through, and that's there in the fold of the map. And I remember him coming round. Um, from a spell of sort of morphine hallucination and, and into lucidity. There's some poems about those morphine dreams and that sort of disturbed stage after someone has an operation, mm -hmm. especially elderly people. And he sort of looked at me, and I was sitting beside his bed with my notebook, and he said, hmm, giving you quite a bit to write a bit about. Giving you quite a bit to write about, aren't I? Oh. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. And in terms of exploring your mother's um, condition and mm. depression, has she, did, did she know that you were writing? I think that's such an interesting that question, and it's, uh, I, I, um, it's the question I would think of asking first mm. as well, because there is that conflict, isn't there, between the art and the life, and mm. in confessional poetry and writing about family, uh, I can't remember who it was, or whether it was Philip Roth who said, when a writer is born into the family, the family is finished. But I'll check that quote. But it is that. You know, people are very wary of writers in the family, and rightly so. Um, and I'm quite careful about those boundaries. So I had written, I'd written a few. Um, for instance, the Leonids, which refers very glancingly to her being ill in a way. And I wrote a longer one called My Mother Spills the Pins, which is about... My experience as a very small girl of my mother sort of having a moment of unravelling and what that is like. Mm. And I also wrote a poem called Louder Than Words about her being in hospital knitting because she would always send us things that she'd knitted for us in hospital. Oh. Quite heartbreaking to think of. Mm. And um, I shared them first with my sisters and said, do you think it's all right for me to show mommy? And my mother was a real force of nature, a very strong woman with those brittle moments in her life. And she, you know, was eldest of six children, grew up on a farm with very little money, daughter of a farm manager, not of someone who owned a farm. 
and then brought up five daughters on a minister school teacher's salary. So she was always stretched to the limit and stretched herself to the limit. I mean, she really pushed herself, I think, and was a woman in that era where women were expected to be good wives and mothers, but were still also often working. You know, she was wor working when she met my father and only stopped, you know, later um, when she had had more children. And they were meant to do everything, which you see, I think, in the diaries of Sylvia Plath, that, that sense of trying to be the perfect everything and um, not always having your own creative outlet and not being understood and spoken to um, in the way that everyone understands now and therapy is much more common. Mm -hmm. um, in my mother's era, it was just medicine, I think they... Hospitalization and drugs treatment. Yes, yeah. yes. Shock therapy, drugs. Yeah, and that take you away to somewhere where you don't cause trouble. You know, mm. and um, so I did in the end. Uh, I showed my mother, and and I said, you know, would you be happy if I published any of these? And she said, yes, it's fine. Um, because my mother liked to call a spade a spade and liked to be frank and direct, sometimes to making other people quite unsettled by it. Um, she didn't want to um, hide anything or pretty it up. So the fact that I was talking about her depression was, I think, something that she felt that would be useful was making things known. Um, although she would, you know, she would tease me about writing, you know, mm. like the title of the Tempest Prognosticator, you know. <laughs> <laughs> highfalutin title um, but yes I think she was happy and, and when when I sent poems to Mariska they only had some about my mother in and they had others about family and Hamish wrote back and through the post wonderfully a lovely letter saying mm -hmm. that they had enjoyed the poems I'd sent but did I have more about my mother mm -hmm. and I said well yes I do and then I told my mother and she was I think happy about that as mm -hmm. well but at the time it was accepted, my mother was very ill with Parkinson's um, and declining, but I didn't know that she wouldn't be alive by the time the pamphlet was published. And she died in May uh, 2015. And um, so that, of course, changed the shape of the end of the pamphlet. It wasn't possible to leave it where it was when it was this time last year, it had to become the pamphlet that showed an arc of this experience of my relationship with her through to um, the last couple of poems deal directly with literally the last hours of her life. Wow. Yeah. And I suppose there is that interesting thing, isn't there, about the writer and the family, which is that it, it can seem the, the writers focusing on those around them, but it, but the writer is a part of the family as yes, well, yeah. so it is yeah. your experience yeah, as yeah. much as Yeah, it's a diagram, I guess, of your your life coinciding with mm. someone else's life and, and writes. I mean, I know many writers who say this is nonsense, you mustn't even care what other people think, but I, I'm a little bit careful. I think I would, it would be hard to publish something if someone said absolutely, absolutely not. Absolutely not, yeah. That would be quite a bold step. And also, I mean, I'm mean, interested, of course, this is my version of the story, and other sisters might have slightly different versions. I mean, everybody, all my sisters are very supportive and lovely mm. about um, the writing, but no one is aware that there are 
in the very selection of, of incidents to write about you are editing you're choosing some things to write about and not others mm -hmm. and I think there will be a full collection about my mother but I don't think that will be before five years either I think there's a lot lot to explore a lot to say there are poems that aren't in here and it's very important to me to let things settle and think things through and you know I, poems about my mother and her sisters that will probably take five years to write just just to get everything straight mm -hmm. yeah. I think the artistic gift in my family comes from my mother so I think my sisters got that because we have two paintings in the house which were done by my mother as a high school art project and they're both very good mm -hmm. but of course once she got married she stopped it wasn't something it was she wasn't a lady of leisure she was a full-time mother and housewife and run ragged and mm -hmm. and I think that's such a shame that that in that era she couldn't have that outlet for her creativity mm -hmm. but she did fortunately as a as something when Orta died that you know, she one of only two of her her younger brother and her the only two finished high school and their early years were just with a, a tutor on the farm they were sort of home and farm school because okay. their farm was far too far away from town mm. and she had wanted to be a librarian but was her father was discouraged from spending the money on sending her to university because in those days mm. you know they weren't very encouraging in fact my grandfather went to see the the head of the librarianship department and he said oh most of the women don't 50% of women don't pass I wouldn't waste your money so my mother didn't ever have that officially but she had this you know husband uh, with uh, you know, a lot of learning and they both loved books and her house was absolutely crammed full of books and still is <laughs> in every corner of the house so yeah, that shared love of books is is the biggest uniting factor but yes there's a lot of creativity in my sisters as well Shall we have another poem mm. now? And then, uh, right, I'm thinking what, which one I should read. Mm. I think I'm going to read another one from A Fold in the Map. And it's one called Weather, and I'm reading it because it's about both my parents as well. It's called Weather Eye, which was the title of my first collection. It's dedicated to them for Anne and Harwood. And I wrote it. Oh, I think it was their one of their wedding anniversaries. I'm going to get the date wrong, I guess. Maybe their fortieth, and they were actually on the ship going over to the UK. My father had organised a, a journey on the St Helena Line, stopping off at St Helena Island, and um, mostly a treat for himself that bit, I think, because my mother wasn't <laughs> such a happy traveller. And when they flew back, but I, I, fa I wrote this poem for them and I faxed it to them on the ship. You, you could send a fax as their wow. anniversary present. So this is called Weather Eye for my parents, Anne and Harwood. In summer, when the Christmas beetles filled each day with thin brass shrilling, heat would wake you lapping at the sheet, and drive you up and out into the glare to find the mulberry's deep shade or watch ants marching underneath the guava tree. And in the house, Mummy would start the daily ritual, whipping curtains closed, then shutters latched against the sun. And when you crept in, thirsty from the garden, the house would be a cool, dark cave, 
an enclave barricaded against light and carpeted with shadow. Still, except the kitchen where the door was open to nasturtiums flailing at the steps, while on the stove the pressure cooker chugged in tandem with this steamy day. And in the evenings, when the sun had settled and crickets started silvering the night, just home from school, smelling of chalk and sweat, Daddy would do his part of it, the checking on the front veranda of the scientific facts. Then if the temperature had dropped enough, the stays were loosened and the house undressed for night. Even the front door wide now for the slightest breeze, a welcoming of all the seasoned scents, the jasmine, someone else's supper, and a neighbor's voice out walking Labradors, the only time of day for it this time of year. How well the world was ordered then. These chill machines don't do it half as true, the loving regulation of the burning days. Somehow my judgment isn't quite as sure when faced with weather signs. Let me come home to where you watch the skies and keep things right. I hadn't realised when I picked that on the spur of the moment. I was thinking of it being a poem about my parents, but I hadn't realised that in the third stanza I mentioned the nasturtiums flaming at the steps. And the Leonids has a very bright nasturtium orange Ooh, cover, yeah. specifically picked because the first poem in it is called Notes Towards Nasturtiums and refers in it to a dress my mother had of this colour. And actually that section of the poem, My Mother's Dress, is in the Glasgow Herald today. Oh. And the last poem in the collection, which is written the year after my mother died, references nasturtiums as well. So we bookended the Leonards with nasturtiums. And it's funny, I just <laughs> lighted on the poem with the flowers and um, clearly they were favourites for both my mother and myself. These poems, I feel, I feel like I'm literally being transported through time and space when I hear them and they are so carefully described and evoked to give me that experience, mm. your experience or mm. a remembered experience mm. of a time and place. What is your process like? How do you go to that place and then create it in a poem? Well, it usually begins with some kind of incident or a line. So I think that the first two poems in A Fold in the Map are, are very like that too. They're very setting the scene and thinking about childhood incidents or a theme running through. The first one in A Fold in the Map is called Plenty and it's about water or the lack of it and how my mother had to be frugal, not just because she was frugal by nature and we had little money, but because there was often drought and there were water restrictions. So I was thinking in London, in the first year of my working in London, in that way you do when you're looking back somewhat homesick for your home country and then everything is more vivid and you're trying to reach back both to place and to time in writing about it. So I wrote that poem plenty about my mother saving water as a um, contrasting it with living in England and having just come from Scotland where water was so plentiful and yet how you miss something, something is lost and how, how the, the time of um, 
scarcity was in its own way a time of abundance. And Whether I was written not long after that, I think, around about the same time, and it does a similar thing with heat and the idea of the old house having to be closed up to keep the cool of the night in when they got too hot. And funnily enough, those two poems, I get people from very different countries, people from Malaysia, Kenya, all kinds of other hot countries or countries with a lack of water responding to mm, it and saying, I remember my mother doing that or <laughs> we did that or... As we were, I mentioned earlier, you've worked uh, in collaboration with other poets in different ways and you have a kind of group of poets that you are part of. Could you talk a little bit about how those experiences came to be and what that way of working is like for you? Right, well I love collaboration, I love working with other poets when the chemistry is right, when the mix is right. Um, I, I've found much more support and collaboration in the poetry world than is popularly reputed, you know, in the pages of Private Eye and so on about all these dreadful, envious <laughs> and competitive poets. There is that too, but for me it's been a very positive and joyful experience on the whole. I think also maybe because I'm one of a large family and a large extended family that that collaborative process is perhaps something that comes more <laughs> naturally to me. But I had been writing very carefully on my own in the UK. I'd had a few things published in South Africa in university journals and I'd helped edit a university journal. And I didn't write much when I was in Edinburgh partly because I was so overwhelmed with all the experiences I was having. But once I went to London and started working in publishing, I really started to be serious about writing and sending out poems for publication. But I was doing that very much on my own. And I read, I think in The Guardian, about Michael Donaghy's City University course that both Paul Farley and Roddy Lumsden had been on, and I think also John Stammer. So these were all poets who were being published, who had studied with Michael Donaghy. And Michael Donaghy was then shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. So I thought, I'm going to buy a ticket to the T.S. Eliot readings and see what he's like, mm -hmm. and then I'll think about signing up for his course. And I was completely blown away by his reading, because I don't know if you've ever her senior recording or Michael used to perform without uh, a book or no paper, no words in front. He knew all his poems and he performed in a very intense and enthralling bardic way. He was very, very charismatic and the poetry was also beautiful and beautifully constructed on the page. So I loved his reading, and an interval when I went to get a drink, there he was, having a little chat with Roddy Lumpton and a few others, and I plucked up the courage to go after him and say, hello, I'm Isabel Dixon, I'm from South Africa, writer of poetry, I'm thinking of signing up to a course. And he was so incredibly generous, he said, but of course you must, I'll be very disappointed if I don't see you there. Oh. And, um, <laughs> so of course I did, but I did go with real fear and trembling, thinking it's going to be full of lads you know all the all these male poets would be there and, you know what would it be like i'm you know i was very very nervous my hands were shaking when oh. i went into class and um he was very very inspiring 
he was an interesting teacher and he, he wasn't very directive but there was great feedback and one of the things there I met some of my best friends in poetry to this day but the class grew because he was so popular it grew too big so you would go for a week and, look, and there'd be 20 people which is too much to workshop so a few of us decided to create our own little workshop group mm. and so Simon Barraclough, Helen Clare, Andrew Dilger, Roisin Tierney and I formed a little group and we published a pamphlet after a year or so called Unfold which was designed by my friend Lynn Stewart and it is a rather beautiful work which unfolds like a map and that, that group has changed a bit we, we published another one another book called Ask for it by name when Andrew and Helen had moved away but Olivia Cole had joined us and Leanne Strauss had joined us and then things mixed again so the last uh, pamphlet that we've done the most recent one it won't be the last um, is with myself Simon Luke Healy, um, Leanne Strauss, Roisin Tierney, who's been with us from the first, and Christopher Reeves. In a different zone, um, Simon Barraclough, Chris McCabe and I um, collaborated on something called The Debris Field, which we produced, wrote, produced and performed for the centenary of the sinking of Titanic. Because we were actually looking for a new project. We'd organised some reading events together, like we did a a reading event where we commissioned various poets to write a new poem each on one of Pink Floyd's albums and that was immense fun um, <laughs> but quite a lot of poets and then we thought what should we do next and I said I'm completely obsessed with Titanic and we realized all three of us were completely obsessed with Titanic and the centenary was coming up we thought well why don't we just do this with just three of us and we each went away we, we chatted a bit about it and we knew we wanted to use um, Ollie Barrett, who'd composed music for one of Simon's productions, which I took part in, called Psychopoetica. It had original strings music performed live a couple of times with 12 poets reading each, reading a poem from a scene from the film Psycho. And then we just had stills of the film. But with Debris Field, we wanted to go one step further into multimedia. We wanted to be performing live, three of us, um, in chorus and different um, timings. We, the th we wanted the three of us to be performing in front of a screen of images, black and white images, linked to the idea of Titanic. Although we knew we couldn't get a lot of Titanic original images because of copyright costs, so we had to be very creative with the filmmaker Jack Wake Walker and then original score by Ollie Barrett. Mm. Even though that, that original score wasn't live, it was the film and the score were recorded and we perform live in front of, uh, of the screen. And I think we met in Dunbar, didn't yes, we? Yes. And then Chris couldn't join us, but Simon and I performed and took his, absorbed his parts. And that process was fascinating because we each went away with our shared library of reference works on Titanic and we lent each other books and said which were great and took our different things away from it. We each went away and wrote. 
and we had a certain deadline and then we just sent each other what we'd written. It was so interesting that we'd overlapped in quite a lot of things but had also picked very different things and um, because we collaborate well there was a little bit of envy damn it he, you know Simon got that bit right about taking the bodies back to Canada you know many of the bodies were taken taken to Canada and buried there and um, but and we'd both written some poems that uh, referenced the ship's baker who had survived but we, we knew we couldn't publish everything, so we, we would each took all three poets' work and decided what absolutely had to stay in and what mm. we would jettison, uh, and which of ours we could bear to part with and which was stronger of each other's work. And then we created our own individual ideal order. And it was uncanny how closely our suggested order and what we kept and what we let go reflected each other's. So there was no, there was a bit of shifting around and maybe we can move this and how we do that because we knew we wanted to be no more than 50 minutes. It's a 45 minute show. And yes, so we, we were in agreement and then we gave that script to Jack and Ollie and they went away and composed their bits and brought it back together and it was, yeah, it's been brilliant. Yeah, we, it, it's, it's a, Powerful piece of work to perform. It feels very literally immersive is the word that people have used, and it's it is moving and it it does. Although it's not narrative, and it's not any kind of chronological story per se. There is some chronology in it, but we and we are reflecting incidents. There's a lot of riffing off, looking at issues of being an immigrant, of being a worker. You know of. Uh, the people who built the ship, and a lot about luxury versus poverty, of course. Which is so relevant again to the so time we're living now. now. So we are thinking now of, um, we just, before I came, I was looking at some emails between us. We had a little reunion chat the other evening <laughs> about rebooting it, and we want to, we'll keep the words the same and the music the same, but we're going to play a bit with the imagery to play up some of the resonances to do with migration and crossing oceans to find better work and a better life mm. and how it's much more likely that you're going to die if you're poor than if you're rich in that kind of situation. Mm. Really important mm. topics. Mm. Um, I look forward to more on that and uh, I think um, we'll have our final poems soon because um, it is festival time and I know there's many more things <laughs> to fit into this week. But before yes. that, I, I feel like I, I'm desperate to ask you this one other question and I think it's especially uh, particular, I mean, a, a thing for many writers nowadays and, you know, going back to what you're talking about, you know, I think there's a, gen a generation or so ago when especially women weren't able to fit in their own especially creative or individual interests into the lives that they were having to lead. Um, but now we, we're allowed more freedom in those ways often, but we still have to try to figure out how we balance our work life and our creative yes. life. And so I always think that's a very important question. Uh, and I think a lot of people are curious to, to know how people manage that. But also, I think especially for you, because your work life is so 
so much about literature and reading prose and reading words and, and being immersed in that. How, how do you make room in your head for all that kind of work and then uh, have, have time and space for your poetry? Does it overlap? Do you keep them totally separate? How do you do it? I'm a Gemini, constantly <laughs> wrestling with myself, scolding myself. You know, I, I'm very blessed and cursed with a fascinating job. Uh, you know, I work with amazing writers and incredible publishers and it's always interesting, always absorbing, filled with challenges and it could consume your entire life if you let it. And so I do always feel I don't spend as much time on the poetry as I should. I'm always pushing for that extra hour in the day so I, I'm lucky like my father I don't need a lot of sleep so I go to bed quite late and I get up quite early mm. and I try to make the first hours of the day for poetry wow. but often that's as you know doing poetry admin as well you've got to send your bio here and you've got to submit these poems here and there so it's not often that the real writing happens in those early hours though ideas are, are do spring up I do a lot of writing in transit, so on trains, on planes, and I commute between Cambridge and London, so while in the morning I'm usually focused on work and what's coming next, in the evening I will probably be reading a manuscript for most of the way and then doing some work on, on um, a poem at some stage or writing down notes. I keep notes, a notebook close at hand all the time. And then on a Saturday, I also get up early while my husband's just sleeping to have that time alone, and try. And then I do more shaping of the poem. So it's, it's. I've sort of found a routine that I try to keep to. Thank you. And will you read us one poem? This is from uh, the other new book that's just come out—a full collection called Bearings. Yes. So Bearings is very different to a fold in the map and the Leonids. It's not a family book at all really although actually a poem about my father snuck in there's a <laughs> poem called a part of me is, is gone which is in the this uh, this week's new statesman is in there but that's there is part of a, s a few poems that are in memoriam poems there's quite a lot of politics in bearings there are two sections one section about south africa that has a poem in memory of the Craddock four who were murdered by the state and some poems about slavery in Africa. There is a section on the West Bank, Palestine and uh, Israel. And there are a lot of poems about exploration and travel. So Japan, Egypt, and the exploration of cosmology in poems about dark matter. But I think because I'm here, I would like to read um, the Scottish poem or maybe even, if I have the space, do you have space for both? Please read both. Okay, so the two the poems that came from my trip up to Aberdeenshire, to Ellen and to Edinburgh two years ago, around this time, um, August, September, two years ago. The first piece is, that's the rocking of Edwin Morgan's chair, you can hear if you can hear it. Um, first of these is Ellen. What are we to do with all this sky? Swifts swoop and stitch it to the glistening grass, bring flighty news of clouds that gather, pass, disperse, 
as birds do, chirruping the breeze. Here even the breeze has water in. The grass is fat with juice, the river laps your skin. The cloud light turns, pale stone. The turbines make their stately signs, alien druid presences absorbing winds into their whiteness, making fire. The wide earth's washed in several silences, the grass tufts nod. This day will be like another day and not. Beautiful Scottish landscape and what that sky and space does. And this is a, a poem set in Edinburgh in the run-up to the referendum. And when I was walking around Arthur's Seat, I always walk up Arthur's Seat when I'm here in Edinburgh because I lived at the foot of Arthur's Seat in Cowan House for my oh. two years in Edinburgh. <laughs> so I had this wonderful nostalgia trip and I remember that my grandfather said he would take his daily walker along Salisbury Crags. So I was walking at the bottom of Salisbury Crags and I saw the, the stones, white stones on the hillside spelling out yes, which I understood had been put up and removed and put up and removed several <laughs> times in the preceding weeks. Hollywood. Here on the slopes of Arthur's seat, I lie down with the crows. Let the grass speak. Let the cool grass heal my broken feet. High up on the crags, someone has rolled away the painted stones and what they spelled. But the crows know what they said. Yes, they call, and yes, again, around my dreaming head. Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook. <laughs>